You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 9 Exile and Return An initial thought to ponder. Please do a web search for Martin Hudacek's statues titled Memorial of Unborn Children. There are two, one showing a mother and child, another with a father present as well. In both pieces, the contradiction between presence and loss is overwhelming. How does anyone find their way home through such grief? Up until two weeks before publication date, this chapter started with the moving story of a woman in prison, removed from her home, separated from her community, and having lost any sense of where she belonged, she was effectively in exile. At the last minute, I had to remove the story because of legal sensitivities. Rather than fill this space with other words, I draw your attention to the many people around the world in similar situations. The following pause is left blank to prompt us to remember all those missing in exile, the disenfranchised millions in prison, the harried millions of refugees, and the muted millions who are homeless, lost, or in hiding. Subheading, Exile in the Bible and in Human Experience In the opening chapters of Genesis, one of the consequences of the fall was that Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. They became exiles, refugees from the only land they had known. In a sense, humanity has wandered unhomed ever since, scattered across the earth searching for an original goodness that has been lost. Marcus Borg refers to this theme of exile as another of the major macro-stories in the Bible. There are too many examples to list, but the most important are the twin military exiles of Israel after the collapse of the unified nation. First, the northern kingdom was invaded and the people scattered by the Assyrian Empire in about 720 BCE and basically never heard of again. Second, the southern kingdom was attacked by the Babylonian Empire several times between 605 and 587 BCE. Israelites were deported to Babylon after each attack. The temple in Jerusalem, which had become the centre of Israel's connection to God, was destroyed. Quote, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept. 
How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? From Psalm 137. We read some of the spiritual reflections by the Israelites during the period in Babylon in the books of Daniel, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Decades later, Babylon was itself conquered by Persia and the Israelites were allowed to return in 538 BCE. Return to their homeland, however, did not chase away the feeling of exile. The later prophets continued to suggest that, in a spiritual sense, the people were not truly home. This example of Israel in exile does not stand as a lone incident. In the biblical narrative, it is representative of a common human experience that continues to this day. Homes are still destroyed by natural disasters, casting people under the mercy of others. Poverty and disease continue to make millions of people outcasts from society and homeless on city streets. Political conflicts make people's country of birth so unsafe that they choose to leave. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, quote, in the first half of 2021, more than 84 million individuals were forcibly displaced worldwide as a result of persecution, conflict, violence, or human rights violations. End of quote. Exile is not always literal banishment from one's home. In a metaphoric sense, exile is felt by migrants who yearn for their old life, by those who live at the margins of their society, and by those whose life is devoid of community. Exile is experienced by those who feel lost in the wilderness, and by those who grieve for something, a child, a marriage, good health, they have lost. Exile is seen in various forms of identity confusion and gender dysphoria. Exile is a good way to describe the sense that we do not belong here. We find ourselves estranged from God, from each other, and from the land. We are alienated from ourselves, lost and hungry for home, yearning to grasp our true identity and find the place where we belong. Exile is the human condition. The history of God's people in the Old Testament, from the paradise of Eden and the promised land to Babylon, symbolically depicts the history of all humanity. The New Testament picks up those symbols too, with Peter writing about Christians as aliens and exiles in Babylon, and John describing the ultimate fall of symbolic Babylon as a precursor to the renewal of paradise on earth. Since the dividing walls of tribalism have been made obsolete by the gospel, we are all exiles together, all seeking the same homeland. Subheading, The Journey Home In the biblical narrative, God's merciful response to our physical, psychological and spiritual exile is to enable the journey home. Mercy addresses the experience of exile on multiple levels. First, mercy can address some of the immediate needs of people while they are in exile, especially their needs for safety and human connection. When a refugee arrives in a foreign land, how are they treated? Are they feared and shunned by the locals, or welcomed and embraced? Mercy can be seen in the care refugees are shown, in the food, shelter, clothes and protection they are given, in the time spent listening to their stories, in the way new roles are given to them, so that in dignity they can contribute once more with the resources they already have. Followers of the biblical God are clearly called to provide mercy in those forms. Jesus calls us to welcome strangers, as does Paul. We are not to oppress the foreigners in our midst, and not to discriminate against them, but to love them, 
treat them fairly, make food available to them, treat them as citizens, and even allocate land to them. The same is true for other forms of exile. Mercy is expressed in the physical and emotional care of those who are lost or unhomed, and in the development of nurturing relationships. Mercy is shown in both serving them and in enabling them to serve. When a physical return home is not possible, safe, or desired, the appropriate form of mercy will be to help to establish a new home. Mercy might create opportunities for a new life in a new country, to learn a new language, adapt to a new culture, find a job, and become accustomed to a new community in which a new sense of belonging can grow. Such was the advice of Jeremiah to the Israeli exiles in Babylon. Quote, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's Jeremiah 29, 5-7. The word welfare in that verse is literally shalom. It points to the role of mercy in enabling a group or a person to flourish even in the midst of exile. Settling in Babylon may be the greatest kindness. Sometimes that results in a complete assimilation and the total loss of prior cultural identity, but that's not necessarily the case. Jeremiah's advice was not intended to encourage the disappearance of Jewish identity. On the contrary, he fully expected the people to eventually return to Jerusalem. His advice was about how to thrive while in exile, with a balance of loyalty to their temporary overlords and a subversive allegiance to their one true lord. That balance is perfectly shown in the stories of Daniel, who cooperated with the officials in Babylon and yet engaged in non-violent resistance on issues that really mattered. Without wishing to diminish the trauma of many people's experiences of exile, there are some cases where exile itself is an act of mercy. To be removed from a comfortable home, whether that home be literal or figurative, and forced to find a new path in a foreign place, might be exactly the challenge one needs to thrive. The discomfort of exile may produce the motivation to change that empowers growth. When birds push their young out of the nest, it's an act of mercy, without which the young will never learn to fly. Second, mercy contributes to the possibility of exiles returning home, which for many is the most obvious need. We may express mercy by rebuilding someone's house after it has been destroyed by some natural or political disaster. We may contribute to making their country of origin or their family situation safe to return to. There are many examples of this return home in the Bible. Moses left Egypt aged about 40 and after a further 40 years in self-exile was directed by God to return to his homeland of Egypt. David fled from King Saul into exile but eventually returned after Saul's death to become king himself. According to one of the Gospel writers, Jesus was also a refugee, escaping from Herod's death threat to live in Egypt before returning to settle in Nazareth. As can be seen by Israel's experience, however, not every exile finds a way to return home. Some, like the Jews exiled by Assyria, are lost forever. Others, like the Jews exiled in Babylon, 
do return home, only to discover that home is not what they hoped for. Although they returned to Jerusalem, they were no longer the same, and nor was their homeland. They continued to be oppressed by other nations, continued to have internal conflict, continued to break their covenant with God, and were still effectively lost. The post-exilic Jews started to realize that where you are is not actually so important, which is why Isaiah implies that the whole world is Babylon. The same can be true for all exiles. A physical return home does not always resolve the underlying desires for identity and belonging. Consequently, the third level at which mercy responds to exile is to address deeper psychological needs and enable a real return home. Mercy is often not directed toward helping unhomed people return to the physical place, but toward establishing or re-establishing a sense of belonging within a broader context of shalom. In his life and teaching, Jesus shows God's heart for the lost and marginalized. In Luke 15, Jesus notes in three consecutive parables that God has no greater joy than when restoring the lost. Whether it be a lost sheep, a lost coin, or a lost son, God's response is to find, to restore, and to rejoice. The parable of the lost sheep is most clear about this, that the godlike shepherd will go to extreme lengths to find a lost sheep and carry it back to safety. The brokenness in the parable of the lost son, actually two lost sons, is a combination of sin and exile. The younger son sins by demanding his inheritance ahead of his father's death and then squandering it in dissolute living. But he also finds himself in self-inflicted exile. Having forsaken his cultural heritage, he becomes lost in a foreign land ashamed and disenfranchised. With what Pope Francis calls overabundant mercy, the father watches the horizon, expectantly waiting for the son and us to return. The father, who already showed surprising kindness by giving him money and freedom, shows even more surprising kindness when the son does decide to return home. He sees the son and runs to embrace him before any words of repentance are spoken. Filled with compassion, he rejoices in his lost son's return. The father's welcome is not primarily about celebrating the son's return to a physical home, but restoring to him a sense of belonging within the family. In support of Jesus' teaching on this heart for the lost and marginalized, the Gospels also report numerous incidents to show what that attitude looks like in practice. Jesus' encounter with a woman at the well is one example. The woman was a Samaritan drawing water in midday on her own, an outcast from an already disparaged group. Although an exile within her own community, she was the first person to whom Jesus revealed his identity as Messiah. Rather than ignoring, dismissing, or talking down to her, Jesus engaged with her in a genuine conversation. She was changed. But her change was the result of Jesus' kindness, not a precondition for it. The simple kindness of a conversation may not seem very extreme to us, but in the context, a Jewish man and an ostracized Samaritan woman, this is a radical and highly subversive act. He surprises her with his willingness to engage with her, with his candor, with his affirmation of her inherent value, and with his supernatural knowledge of her situation. A lot of preaching imposes moral judgment onto this story, 
supposing the unnamed woman to be a prostitute or adulterer. But neither Jesus nor John says a word of criticism about her. John notes the scandal of Jesus talking to a Samaritan and a woman, but doesn't raise any issue about her being sinful. Jesus does say to her, quote, You have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. End of quote. But that does not cast blame on her. Perhaps she was at fault, but in the cultural context it is equally possible that she was married very young to an older man who subsequently died, that a brother was required to take on the husbandly duties, as per Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, and that one or more husbands found something objectionable about her and chose to divorce her, as per Deuteronomy 24, 1. Jesus may well have been saying to her, with compassion rather than judgment, I know how much abuse you have suffered through five husbands, and the one you are with now is no better than the others. Jesus does not bring her multiple partners into the conversation to accuse or shame the woman. On the contrary, Jesus names the shame that she carries so that, through being named and acknowledged, the shame can be purged. All of this is an expression of mercy from Jesus. He saw her in exile and compassionately helped her find a way home. The effect is so affirming and energising that she returns home as an evangelist. Furthermore, she is sufficiently respected that, quote, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony, end of quote. Jesus, on the other hand, is so excited and energised by the conversation that he loses his appetite. As we saw in chapter 1, Zacchaeus was effectively in exile, though still living in his homeland, he was morally lost and ostracised from his people. Jesus saw the outcast Zacchaeus and acted mercifully to restore his moral and cultural identity. The healing of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years is yet another example of the same dynamic. Jesus deliberately calls the crowd's attention to the woman, not to embarrass or shame her, but to make her cleanness public so that no one had any further excuse to shun her. In each case, the lifting of shame is an important aspect of how Jesus expressed mercy to the marginalised. In doing so, he showed mercy's role in moving people from exile on the margins back to inclusion in their community. The indigenous nations in Australia exemplify a more complex situation in which they live physically in their homeland and yet are dispossessed of it. They are effectively in exile within their own land, as with many dispossessed people, the restoration of their rightful land is an issue of justice rather than of mercy. They need relevant social and political recognition, altered legal status, a fair hearing, and formal treaties. It would not be an act of mercy for the descendants of colonial occupation to acknowledge that ownership of Australian land was never ceded by the traditional custodians. That would simply be fair and ethical. Many colonisers have acted with mercy toward Indigenous people, but the more common and substantial form of mercy in the Australian context is something even more surprising, the extreme kindness and patience expressed by generations of Indigenous people to their oppressors. That was evident in early examples of Indigenous people showing European settlers where to find drinkable water. It continues to be evident in their ongoing restraint and willingness to engage peacefully. That display of mercy 
by a disempowered minority of the current Australian population is deeply costly, uncomfortable and disruptive. Whether the mercy will be received and understood by my own cultural peers who constitute the majority of Australia's population, and whether it is disruptive enough to transform us to pursue justice, remain open questions. Nevertheless, the establishment of Shalom in Australia will owe its success first and foremost to that sustained mercy, and only secondarily to any legislative changes that might be inspired by that mercy. A purely legal solution might leave hearts and discriminatory attitudes unchanged. But if the mercy shown to the colonising majority inspires a new commitment to justice for the Indigenous minority, then legal changes can be crafted to encourage the true shalom in which all of us can flourish. Fourth, the deepest mercy of God enables a resolution to the larger cosmological problem of exile. The ultimate resolution to exile is shown in the overall arc of the biblical narrative, which starts with our banishment from a garden paradise and ends with our citizenship in the city of God. During the years of Jesus' life, God dwelt among us, which is why Jesus is sometimes given the appellation Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Through the incarnation, God reaches out to Babylon, that is, to all of us in exile. Jesus left the safety and comfort of his own homeland, heaven, to live in exile with us. In his adult years, Jesus had no place to call home, even on this planet, nowhere to lay his head. Homeless but not lost, he said, quote, The kingdom of God is among you. End quote. Importantly, that was not said to his disciples, but to a group of questioning Pharisees. Jesus' kingdom is not an escape from here, nor contained within the church but is to be made evident in our midst, even in the midst of people who are not his followers. At the end of his life, Jesus assured his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. Furthermore, he claimed to personally be the way for us to find that place, a way marked by weakness, service and mercy. All this guides our thinking when we read the final part of God's revelation to John, which is a vision of a renewed heaven and earth, and of a renewed Jerusalem coming down to the earth. In John's vision of the new Jerusalem, God comes to live among us once more. The place prepared for us becomes manifest, a city architected by God in which we find the true home for which we have been yearning. As noted already, during their exile in Babylon, Israel was told to make a new home and to seek the shalom of their new city, those instructions did not contradict the hope of returning home, but promoted a kind of dual focus that is just as relevant for followers of Jesus today. We live with an eschatological hope of future paradise where God is in our midst, where there are streets of gold and no more crying. But that future home does not prevent or conflict with the call to be present here and now in this world. The dual focus is incarnated in the network of reciprocal mercy where faith, hope and love enable all to flourish. That is the essence of the kingdom of God Jesus preached and in which his prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is lived out in the community of his followers. Hebrews 11 makes this dual focus abundantly clear. The consistent witness of faithful people is a commitment to doing the work of God in their present situations, 
saving their family from flood, finding places to live, having children and blessing them, escaping from slavery and suffering persecution, all because of the hope of a future city whose architect and builder is God. In the end, the biblical resolution of exile is not based on where we live, but on how we live. Jesus came to show us what it would look like to live here as if this were our true home. The resolution of the deep anguish of exile is not to leave this place in order to find our real home, but to make this place what it was supposed to be. In the end, the vision in Revelation is not that we escape from earth to heaven, but that the city of God comes down to earth. The role of mercy in that hopeful vision is multifaceted. When we live in the knowledge that mercy will dominate the future city because God will be in our midst, we build our lives around mercy now. We show mercy to all people by caring for them within their varied kinds of exile and by helping them to find a physical place of safety and belonging. We show mercy by helping people to grapple with the existential angst and alienation they feel now and by reassuring them that they are always loved and cared for in the embrace of God. May mercy guide your journey home. Subheading, A Slave to the Gods. To end this chapter, I want to retell the story of a young girl from Togo in Africa. Brigitte Soso Perenyi was a victim and survivor of modern slavery, and her story touches on many aspects of mercy. A long-standing cultural practice in parts of West Africa is to pay for past crimes by sacrificing a young girl to the gods. Through this practice of trokosi, which means slaves of the gods, the curse of the gods, which would have brought illness or suffering to the offender, is transferred onto the girl. So, when Brigitte's uncle was caught in adultery, the traditional way to atone for his crime and dispel the resulting curse was to find a female virgin in his family, typically between six and eight years old, who could be handed over to a religious shrine. Brigitte's parents told her she was going to live with her uncle so she could be educated in Togo's capital city, Lome. But in 1996, at the age of seven, she was taken by her uncle to a shrine in the neighbouring country of Ghana. Although the practice of Trukosi is now illegal in Ghana, the problem persists. Like many others, Brigitte was required to work at the shrine, potentially for the rest of her life, and served the priest sexually once she reached puberty. Her name was taken away, and she was banished from her community to pay for her uncle's crimes. If she left, another girl would have to be found to replace her. Her plight shows the multiple layers of abuse that comprise the global experience of modern slavery, physical hardship, exploitation, coercion, and degradation, as well as the denial of her autonomy and freedom. What would mercy look like in Brigitte's context? It would certainly involve her rescue from that abusive situation, the provision of physical and emotional safety in which rehabilitation become possible, and opportunities for her to be reintegrated into her community. Beyond that provision of a second chance, mercy would seek apology and restitution by her abusers. Brigitte's plight was caught on camera in a CBS news report within a year of her enslavement. As a result, an American man, working through an international development agency, travelled to Ghana and arranged for her rescue. He ended up adopting her, 
and caring for her in the USA. That act of mercy gave Brigitte opportunities for education, health care, and material wealth far beyond what she could have experienced in Togo or Ghana. However, being removed from her home country increased her estrangement from her culture and family, leaving her feeling lonely and incomplete. Brigitte's exile had several layers. She was removed from home and forced to live in a neighbouring country and another African culture, and then she was taken even further from her family to another continent with a radically different culture. As years went by, she doubted she would ever be reunited with her family. Why did they give her away? Could she forgive them or her uncle? After turning 21, Brigitte returned to Ghana several times looking for answers. During those visits, Brigitte was able to reconnect with her family and to visit the shrine in which she had been held captive. When she met another Trocosis who had been released from the shrine, Brigitte mused, quote, It is incredible that we have been given a second chance to have life. End of quote. Now, Brigitte has a master's degree in international relations and human rights and works in Ghana as a human rights activist. After years of exile, she was able to return to her home country and build a new life. This is mercy at work. Brigitte's initial need as an abused young girl trapped in slavery was seen by someone who felt compassion and who acted on that feeling with generous kindness. The result was life-transforming for Brigitte, and she is now extending that same mercy toward others. Subheading. Something to consider. What will you do to show mercy to those in exile? Including to yourself, when that is needed? chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.